Welcome to You Masterclass, the film podcast produced by students in the film studies program at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. I'm Eleanor Rose, and I'm happy to welcome my co-host. Hi, I'm Jackie Celestino. We're recording this special series of BLM-focused episodes in the midst of a pandemic via Zoom, so there will be some discrepancies in the audio. Thank you for understanding. Professor Toussaint Lucier is an assistant professor in the W.E.B. Du Bois Department of Afro-American Studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Professor Lucier holds a Ph.D. in history from the University of Chicago, with his research focusing on grassroots responses to the post-war emergence of mass incarceration. At UMass, he teaches courses on African-American history, black politics, criminal justice policy, and transnational social movements. Can you discuss flawed or aggressive portrayals of race relations in movies or TV shows from the last few years? Where do they stumble and why? I think a lot of the questions of sort of flawed kind of presentations of race relations have to do with the way in which like films sort of traffic in stereotypes. I mean, I think it's a classic problem to the degree that having to kind of define or present sort of a fictitious set of circumstances is going to kind of engage that to some degree. But I think the instances where I've seen films avoid those pitfalls are instances where, you know, those stereotypes are kind of exploded to some degree and upended or challenged in really compelling ways. Those efforts are the ones that are held up the most, seen as the most interesting or the most compelling. But a lot of the films that don't do that and don't do what essentially a film should do, right? A film should present you with like complex characters, give you an opportunity to see them confront challenging circumstances or compelling circumstances and deal with those, wrestle with those, and emerge as completely different people, but having changed as a result of those circumstances, or at least being able to sort of reflect on them in some ways. And in, in some sense, the way in which films confront those kind of racial stereotypes in a way that doesn't move past the stereotype and doesn't actually allow their characters to develop is where I think a lot of that problem comes up. One of the things that I think is most interesting about this particular moment is that there's definitely been more of a willingness to sort of uh, push back against that. You've seen like efforts, especially organized or at least promoted through social media of people calling for like folks to kind of boycott this movie or to challenge the right into like the producers or the directors of a particular kind of film and see that as being an opportunity to at least voice their concern. And one of the things that we're sort of dealing with this in this particular moment is the ways in which not only do those kind of flawed portrayals continue to persist, but also there's at least some greater effort to actually push back against them um, and at least kind of call them out to some degree. In I Am Not Your Negro, a 2016 film based on James Baldwin's unfinished manuscript about America through the lens of his three murdered friends, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., and Medgar Evers, Baldwin describes the first time he sees someone that resembles his father on screen, only for the actor to be playing the role of a janitor accused of killing a white girl. Heroes, as far as I could see, were white and not merely because of the movies, but because of the land in which I lived. 
of which movies were simply a reflection. What particular harm do these stereotypes do in film, and what are the consequences? There's a way in which kind of Baldwin, Baldwin's words and really his wisdom still resonate with us today. Perhaps not in his particular description of his own experience, but the way he talks about the sort of limited forms of representation and really the way in which those forms of representation reinforce contemporary circumstances. Kind of what Baldwin was getting at is it's not simply the fact that he didn't see his father on screen, but the way in which that absence reflected the sort of segregated society that he grew up in, the marginalization of African-Americans more broadly in New York City in the 1950s and 60s when he was coming of age, and then more broadly in the society as a whole. Part of what we have to kind of take into account when we think about what Baldwin is saying is that there's obviously more instances of representation of African-Americans and other uh, racialized minority groups that, you know, we, there's, there's more of that on screen. It's really a kind of phenomenal explosion, right, that we've seen from Baldwin's day till now. In spite of those sort of that increased representation, do we still find ways in which relatively still limited portrayals that do exist how much those actually help to reinforce, you know, prevailing stereotypes, racial bias. And I think the concern, particularly when it comes to questions of film, is that in many ways, cinema, television, film draw on and help to kind of reinforce not only sort of like subconscious attitudes and prevailing understandings of the way in which the world works, but also kind of like subconscious motivations as well, too. In, in some sense, those sort of portrayals can be important, not just as a way of reflecting how society is thinking about certain things, sometimes in realistic, sometimes in fantastic ways, but also helping to kind of reinforce beliefs and ideas. And so I think one of the things that we really have to make sure that we're doing a better job of is, you know, creating spaces like this, where there's actually opportunities for folks to not simply absorb those kind of portrayals, but have opportunities to kind of analyze them, think through them. Uh, I think one of the things that would be, is most exciting, and I, I found most interesting over the past several months, is the way in which some of what we might see coming out of Hollywood or some of the big studios is critiqued, broken down, really efforts to push back against it, taking place in a much more local and almost kind of grassroots way with a lot of the ways in which folks are using social media. You know, it doesn't have to be like long YouTube videos, but even like short, like TikTok clips and what have you. There, you have these ways in which uh, there are efforts to think about how people cannot simply be like passive recipients of the kind of ideas that are put out there in the film, but also are in a position to be creators to some degree on their own part, or at least kind of critical observers at the least. Media in the U.S. shaped a narrative of fear around black people, which we see from the very beginning of film and media, with America's first blockbuster film, Birth of a Nation. Largely racist propaganda, the film was widely accepted into the fold of society at the time, and was even shown at the White House. 
As films and movies shape society's reality, we can start to understand why Americans have normalized the system of mass incarceration, a very real consequence of perpetuating these narratives. Mass incarceration, for those who are not familiar with it, is a kind of shorthand way of talking about this sort of incredibly important development that's taken place in American society, where the nation's really prison and jail populations have uh, exploded over the past 50 years, 45 years, 50 years, such that um, in the early to mid-1970s, there were about 200,000 people in prison in the United States. And the that population has increased to the point where roughly about today, there's about 2.1, 2.2 million people behind bars. So a really uh, significant increase, not just in the number of folks behind bars, but also the number of uh, prison facilities that we have in this country. And also the number of people who, even if they're not imprisoned, are under some form of correctional control, such that there's roughly even about, about 7 million people who are either in prison or in jail or under some form of like probation, parole circumstances. And this has really had a far-reaching impact. There's a study that was released last year that noted that one out of every two people in this society has someone or knows someone who has been in prison. It's a dynamic that cuts across a variety of different communities in the society, as well as class positions as well, but one that's particularly impacted African-Americans, particularly poor and working class. 13th is one documentary that's really done a fantastic job of kind of helping to hold a lot of the conversation around the phenomenon of mass incarceration and really trying to kind of broaden it beyond the academics and the sort of policy experts and the legal scholars who have been sort of most concerned about it. And one of the things that Ava DuVernay does that really sort of grounds the film is to try to frame the current phenomenon of mass incarceration in historical terms and also try to do it in a way that highlights not just the problem of, say, the war on drugs, which has played a key role since the late 1980s in terms of significantly increasing the prison population, but also highlighting the ways in which other dynamics of how prisoners are treated behind bars um, have really contributed to this broader phenomenon of mass incarceration. And so just to give an example of like how that relates to some of these questions around uh, bias and stereotype, not being a scholar of film, but being somebody who's been in conversation with a lot of say sociologists and political scientists when it comes to looking at this problem. One way that the kind of prevailing research has shown how mass incarceration um, has impacted these kind of conceptions of racial stereotypes you know, there's been over a decade now, like pretty groundbreaking sociological research that's found that when it's come to job interviews and being able to access employment through the labor market, that there are pretty significant trends to the degree to which the sort of presumption of criminality and the presumption of kind of engagement with the criminal justice system has led to instances where a white applicant who has a, um, a criminal conviction on their background and a black applicant who doesn't, with all things being equal in their applications, the white applicant is more likely to get a call back or a follow-up interview than the black applicant. And that the, uh, the dynamics of how these institutions work can be pretty profound in terms of helping to kind of reinforce and shape sort of popular ideas and attitudes.
that pattern of behavior is something that cinema, that film can play an important role in helping to kind of either reinforce and embrace. You mentioned Birth of a Nation. I mean, I think that's a film that sort of stands out as a sort of unique historical example of how you not only had one of the first films that they ever produced and distributed really not only spark a kind of public reaction, but do so in a way that was able to inspire the rebirth of the KKK and also crystallize and portrayal a particular kind of revisionist history of the Civil War, the Reconstruction era, and kind of promoted nationally. Um, and I think one of the things that I've been most interested in is the way in which you have some films still sort of traffic in those narratives, and then other films that have been pretty successful at pushing back against those. So one of the ones that sort of stands out in my mind as an example is the HBO series uh, Watchmen, which actually sparked a lot of conversation because people didn't expect to take questions of uh, racism and white supremacy on in such a direct way, and also in a venue that hadn't necessarily engaged it because of the Watchmen comic series and how it was read in particular. But that was one that I think, from my perspective as a historian, did a really interesting job of trying to tell a story that was different from our particular reality, but resonated with it in interesting ways and drew on history to really force people to kind of confront the kind of present reality of uh, racism and white supremacy. The media, in their relentlessly fawning coverage, usually describe Black Lives Matter as an activist group or a protest movement. But that's deception by understatement. Black Lives Matter is not a collection of marchers with signs. It's not a conventional political lobby like Planned Parenthood or the NRA. It's not pressuring Congress to pass some narrow new set of laws. Black Lives Matter is far more ambitious than that. It is working to remake the country and then to control it. It's a political party. Listen, there's crime. There are people in those communities who are, those people aren't just being nonchalant about, about gun violence. I lived in Chicago. There are many people who are working in those communities to try to get rid of the gun violence. It's, the gun culture in this, in this country is prevalent, but I don't understand what that has to do with a movement that's for equality for black people. It's, it, it, there, it's not mutually exclusive that if you care about equality for black people, that somehow you're going to stop um, random violence or, unfortunately, kids from being shot. It just seems like apples and oranges. We're recording this coming off of a summer of unrest in the United States. In the wake of the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Elijah McLean, and so many others at the hands of police, we are seeing the American people gather in numbers we've never really seen before. Terms like defund the police and ACAB, or all cops are bastards, have emerged as a response. Yet depending on who you ask, the unrest and mass gatherings are either protests for justice or riots of angry people under the guise of equality to create chaos. How have you seen different news sources portray or cover these recent BLM protests? Yeah, I mean, I think the portrayals have ranged in the way that you're sort of talking about to those that have trade them as righteous efforts to challenge 
injustice and those that have portrayed them simply as sort of like rioters, violent activity that is viscerally grounded in trying to not simply unduly cast police as bad actors, but to challenge sort of like fundamental questions in American society. The portrayals have really ranged. If you you can go from watching Tucker Carlson's, uh, which Tucker Carlson probably had the most popular television show uh, or cable news show in the United States. His might be broadcast to Don Lemon on CNN, and there's a, a real stark kind of range of perception in terms of what's taking place in these in these protests, how they're being characterized, and I think it's it's a testament to really the sort of partisan nature of you know the way in which we receive our news and the way that it's broadcast in particular the reliance on opinion more so than fact in a lot of ways that we expect or assume that a lot of what we're going to absorb or watch as news is going to be less images interviews with people having much of it explained to us or interpreted through sort of one host or another and again, from my perspective as a as a historian and somebody who's always kind of pushed to sort of think about what's the source of the information I'm getting, who's the audience for it, what's the way in which it's being presented, you know, I've been really interested in being able to compare not only how those portrayals from like one scene, one cable news show to another sort of reflect efforts to kind of give us a sense of what's happening but also how that looks in comparison to the nightly news program, how that looks in comparison to some of the print media that still exists that's out there that's kind of given some examination of these events. And then somebody who spends way too much time on social media watching live streams of uh, protests, demonstrations, has been something that's been exhilarating, scary, frustrating, all sorts of emotions in a lot of different ways. And with our current media landscape, one of the things that's been most interesting to me is the way in which some of those opportunities to be able to see firsthand, at least from someone's perspective, what's taking place and how those kind of live streamed demonstrations can then be interpreted or misinterpreted has been one of the most sort of shocking and exciting things. Uh, and how it's broken up at least a little bit of our reliance on, again, cable news or sort of your nightly news broadcast as a way to find out what's taking place. Two minute clip that you might see in a tweet, right, is not necessarily the most exciting or formative approach to learning about what's taking place, but it is more explicitly filtered way of trying to get at the news and trying to understand what's taking place. So how do we change the narrative and make sure not to enforce it further? How can we consciously consume media like news and or film that does not reinforce these harmful stereotypes? And how can anti-racist have white audiences, I guess, watch these films and educate themselves when some people might think they're made for only black audiences? One fundamental task for sort of anti-racist work is to really pierce a lot of the narratives, half-truths, and misconceptions that are out there. 
part of that can be done by um, really contextualizing information that's purposely purposefully decontextualized. Those who are kind of committed to an anti-racist practice can and can think about doing is to find ways to either work with other people to to kind of not just you know critique say on Twitter or on Facebook the kind of media that's out there. But, you know, organize watch parties or other efforts to actually be in conversation with other people as we consume some of this media and be able to correct misconceptions, find ways to promote portrayals that are actually more authentic or do more of the work of humanizing folks who are racially stigmatized as opposed to what oftentimes come across as a sort of dehumanizing portrayal. And even media that's promoted for or that's kind of intended primarily for a Black audience, to to do that work with folks who are Black in a way that, again, provides some of that context and makes it a process of not just having individuals be passive consumers, but are actively engaged in conversation and are members of the audience, but are doing so actively. The last thing I would say, though, is that that sort of process of working with other people is really important that process of being able to kind of contextualize and to think through the narratives that are being put forward in a way that grounds them in our actual everyday reality. But kind of taking from the Baldwin quote that we looked at earlier, I think one question that it's also important to keep in mind is that that sort of critique of narratives is key. But if we think about what Baldwin is saying, it's not simply a question of what we see on the screen, but the way in which that resonates with our lived reality. So if we are sort of committed to an anti-racist practice, it's also about saying, how do we take that critique to the way in which our society works and try to find ways to challenge the, the racism that we see in our society and the way in which that racism intersects with heteropatriarchy, the way in which it it intersects with transphobia, the way in which it combines with class exploitation works and really work to do that transformative work um, in our everyday lives. And that that is something that is an important part of being able to create the kind of change that an anti-racist practice holds up because it's about pushing back against those sort of stereotypical portrayals, but it's also about making sure that our society isn't functioning in a way in which that reinforces those stereotypes. Protests against police brutality and systemic racism are spreading beyond cities and mainly minority areas of the U.S. in the wake of George Floyd's death. From coast to coast, people in suburban and rural towns are organizing demonstrations to call for change. Many of these communities are made up primarily of white people. Some I'm a middle-aged white male, right? I, I've lived a pretty privileged life, and I feel like it's time for us as white Americans to stand off and say, we will no longer accept that. Part of what, part of what made, has made this moment fantastic is, is you've had not just say, Black people out on the street protesting against uh, racist police violence, but you've had a whole host of folks, Black, Latino, Asian, white, and it's you really, Indigenous people, you've had a whole rainbow coalition of, of individuals who have been on the street. And that kind of movement, that kind of mobilization, especially amongst young people, is probably one of the scarier things for those who are committed to racism, like for those who want to promote racism. 
the sort of activity that we've had, where you've had not just Black people getting out and saying this is bad, or white people by themselves doing it, but really have this kind of really mass movement of a whole variety of folks doing it, and doing it in a way that kind of reflects a, a kind of racial solidarity that in some ways builds on the way in which some of the music, film, other sort of like cultural forms of the last several decades have done in terms of cutting across some of the segregation that exists in our society, still exists in our society. That kind of mobilization and protest in some ways reflects the more positive aspects of those kinds of representations. And not just representations, but the way in which younger people have been encouraged to think about race in a way that is different from those previous generations. But we really wouldn't be here at this moment in time where we have millions of people protesting against police brutality and protesting in the way where they can easily identify that the way in which Black people are video clip are being treated by the police is wrong and wanting to do something about it. That is really important. And that is sort of a, a really unique and important moment. And we could have a whole nother podcast conversation about the things that could be better about those protests. But in some ways, there's a lot to be appreciated about that and how we can figure out uh, or in what ways we could try to figure out how to encourage that kind of solidarity and that kind of righteous indignation against something that's clearly wrong that previous generations might have said, you know what, no, it's not my problem, right? I'm just going to kind of ignore it. How we can further encourage that and promote that, I think is really key. The Masterclass podcast is written and produced by students in the film studies program at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Created by Christian Buckley in 2019, our theme music is composed and performed by Corey Shia. Podcast art designed by Sam Huntley. I'm Eleanor Rose. And I'm Jackie Celestino. See you soon.